Well, those of you who are here, again, those online gathering place, those to you indwell, greetings. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, today's theme is joy. Well done, well done. And joy, I mean, joy, I think, is something that we all want, but joy can tend to be elusive. Am I right? Especially sometimes today in the midst of the, the days getting shorter, the darkness sometimes surrounding us, the chaos kind of our, of our world. And yet I would bet that each and every one of us in some way, shape, or form still finds a way to get a little bit of joy in your life. And I would even suggest that the, the way you get this joy is almost always the same. There's a pattern, if you will. I like to call it the pattern of perpetual joy. Now, let me tell you what I'm talking about. A couple months ago, a few months ago rather, right? I get word of this new cookie place in town. And Tracy tells me about it because someone else has told her about it. And so she had gone all the way to the north side. She packed a lunch so she could make it there and back. <laughs> and she went to the north side, but the line at this particular cookie place was all around the building and she didn't have time to stop and do that. So later that night, after I had packed dinner for myself and I was also going to the north side, she said, hey Dave, would you mind stopping and taking a peek? And so I go and I drive around and I take a peek. There's only two people outside, all right? And so I find out, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do it. And so I go to this particular place and I'm like, what do, I, what do I even order? I don't even know. But I find out how much the cookies are. And so I order the four pack because it's a better deal. And you know how I love a deal. And so we bring these things home. Some of them are still warm. And we have these long, you know, this, this long thing of cookies and we open them up. And we realize that a serving size is only a quarter of a cookie. So we cut it in half and each have a half and it is just delightful. It brings us good news of great joy that we then go the next day and we share with all people, right? I came into work and I'm telling everybody, have you tried this cookie place? Have you tried this cookie place? Have you tried this cookie place? Now, unfortunately, I didn't bring cookies for all of you today. I'm not Oprah. Okay, it's not you get a cookie and you get a cookie and you get a cookie, but I do have one. So, hey, it'll be up here. There are two more in my office for gathering place and dwell, but you're going to have to find me afterwards. But anyway, the point being, right, we do that and it's good. It, it's wonderful. And so for like for the next month, every week, Tracy and I get cookies from this place, the four pack, because it's a better deal. But over time, this seems... To, to, to waver, right? This joy that we get from it seems to, to dissipate. It eludes us. The next time we go, they're good, but they're not as good. And the time after that, we go and they're, they're good, but they're, they're just not as good. It's as though there's a diminishing return to this joy. And that's the reality because when we find our joy in something finite, when the object of our joy is something finite, then the, 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 the longevity of our joy will be the same. It will also be finite. And so the question is, is it possible for us to discover in a pattern that leads us to perpetual joy? Is there something that, that could sustain us? As, as Paul says, rejoice always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice how often, Paul? Always. How on earth do we do that? And I think our passage today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, I think it's revealed to us of how we can follow this pattern of perpetual joy. And I know my PowerPoint skills are off the charts. But this is what we find. 
we find in this pattern of joy, there is this revelation. Something is shared with us or revealed to us, either by another person or we discover something, we stumble upon it, whatever it may be. But there is something that is new that is brought into our lives, whether it's an object or a friend or whatever it might be. And then we do an investigation or maybe a little bit of experimentation. What are these cookies like? What is this particular vehicle like? What is this show all about that everyone's raving about? Which then responds, if of course it's a joyful thing, in jubilation, right? This, this, this sense of, of joy. And then it, it, the last step is always, we, if it's real and true, we want to tell somebody else about it, right? And so there's the proclamation of it. Now, what I want to look at today is, is it possible that we find this pattern? Because this pattern, to be honest with you, is found in all places of life. I've actually talked about it before, but maybe you don't remember because I didn't use these words. But this pattern is found in all kinds of places in life, in creation, in our stories. But the question is always, is there, a, is there a way to sustain it? Is there a way to bring it out? And so today we're going to talk about these four things as we get into Luke chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 8. I'll have the, the scriptures on the screen, but you can follow along with me. And there were shepherds living out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared, uh, appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Quick note, in the pattern of perpetual joy, the revelation will often leave you a little bit frightened. And if it doesn't, then I would suggest you're probably not on the pattern to perpetual joy, but we'll get there later. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For I bring you good news. Oops. For I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, this is Luke two, eight through fourteen. We'll read on just a little bit. So suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so this is the revelation. Shepherds sitting out in the fields watching their flocks by night and all of a sudden the glory of the Lord shones round about them and it is revealed to them that a Messiah, that a Savior is going to be born. They will go to this town of David, the smaller one, Bethlehem, and they will discover that a baby is there and this is God's act of salvation in the world. And so what is this revelation really all about? Well, there's a couple aspects to it, I think. Number one, this sermon series we're going through is called Faithful God and Faithful Guides. And so the first thing that this revelation does to them is it reveals, it discloses to them, to them the faithfulness of God. For it tells them about this town in Bethlehem, a, a child is going to be born, and it's revealed to shepherds. This is what it says in Micah chapter 5, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Hold that just for a moment, right? Whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. 
for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. And so sometime around the year 670 BC, Micah speaks these words as, reveal, as they are revealed to him by the Lord. And then throughout this long period of time, it appears perhaps as though God has been distant. But in fact, God's patience is always about bringing things about in God's good time for the salvation of the world. And so he, now he reveals to these shepherds about the good shepherd who's going to be born and who's going to rule over all Israel and then they will live securely. And so the first aspect of this is this is simply, right, the, the demonstration that God has been faithful to his word, to his prophecy, and it's revealed to them. All right, so that's fair enough, that's good. That's probably oftentimes how we read this. It's like, okay, this fulfills the prophecy. But there's more that's going on here, all right? Let's just go back a few verses to Luke chapter two, starting at verse one. In those days, because Luke is doing something here, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So is there more to this revelation than simply that God is being faithful and true and keeping his prophecies and moving this in? I think there is. And it comes from the object of what this revelation is all about. And Luke sets the stage by identifying what time this is in. Now, Caesar Augustus rises to power after his uncle Julius Caesar is assassinated. When Julius Caesar is assassinated, civil wars erupt all over the Roman Empire. And Augustus, he wasn't Augustus back then, he was Octavian, but that's okay. When he rises up, he has the skill and the wherewithal and the wisdom to quell all of the rebellions. This, of course, comes to a culmination in the Battle of Actium in 31 AD, BC. How about that one? 31 BC. And so what happens then is it's said in 27 that finally Caesar Augustus, and he na he's named Augustus by the Senate, these men who gather around him and put this name upon him, that he has closed the doors to the temple of Janus the temple of war, because he has brought peace throughout the empire. It might even be said of him that he is, in fact, the prince of peace. And on top of that, because Julius Caesar, there was this comet when Caesar died, they said that Caesar was rising to the status of God, and so now this adopted son of Julius is who? He is the son of God and the Prince of Peace. This became so prominent in the, the place that there were coins minted that went throughout the Roman Empire. And so if you lived in this empire which stretched all of that orange section, including the red of Italy, you would know that the man who's sitting on the throne is known as the Prince of Peace and the Son of God. Can I just add one other little addition to this? In a town called Priene, this is what it says about him. Since Providence, capital P, meaning this is one of the goddesses in the Roman pantheon, whatever, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our lives, my bad, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus. So Providence, this goddess, has given us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, sending him as savior, both for us and for our descendants. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good 
tidings for the world that came by reason of him. All right. So now are we like, oh, so when Luke says in the year that Caesar Augustus issued a decree, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there's a little bit more to it, right? But again, what is happening here? Luke is setting out this revelation about who this Jesus is, who this baby is, and he's setting him out in sort of juxtaposition to the most powerful person probably, possibly ever to have lived. Someone who brings about peace by violence and the sword. Someone who brings about prosperity and someone who is sort of heralded and given titles by human beings. And in the midst of this, how is Jesus announced to the shepherds? By a host of angels. The glory of the Lord fills the sky, sending terror into these shepherds. Do, do you see a little bit of what Luke is trying to do? I'm writing this good news of great, new, uh, of great joy to all of you, but you've already heard about good news of great joy, but it's the wrong thing. It's the wrong thing. This is not, this is, if you will, this is a finite possible joy. Augustus did not originate from times of old, as Micah says about this child. Rather, he just grew up just like anybody else, and he'll die just like anybody else. And what Luke is trying to communicate is that you don't want to trust in this sort of secular, worldly king. But for most people, then, that gives you, it gives you two options. Number one, you can rebel. You can rebel against this Quirinius who's issuing tax, a census for taxes, for power, and all these different things. You can rebel against this Augustus, which is actually exactly what happened in some places in Israel. All right, which eventually led to the destruction of the temple and the death of hundreds of thousands of Jewish people in the year 70. Or you can assimilate. You can say, ah, I know about that happening over there, but this guy, this guy's pretty cool. He built 50,000 miles of roads. There are temples to him all over the place. There are armies and garrisons. Surely this is the one who has brought peace to the world. And so you can assimilate to that. The question is, what is Luke telling us about this new revelation about who Jesus is? What does it tell us that the story that Luke conveys to us is that the revelation of the, the it's not power that's going to bring about these things. It's not, um, there's another word, <laughs> it's not the, the progress that is being made. But rather, he says, if you want to find true and infinite joy, it's in the presence of God. Because who is this child? He is the one from old. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Today we have to ask ourselves some of those same questions. Mark Sayers in this book, Reappearing Church, says this. In the post-Christian vision, that is the world we're beginning to live in these days. In the post-Christian vision, progress replaces God's presence as the engine of history. So the question is, where do you put your hope? When you're out there looking for joy, trying to find it, where are you putting it? Because I would suggest one of the opposite things is happening. I think joy is pursuing you. 
You see, there's power that rules the world, there's progress that rules the world, or Luke's story is that the very presence of God transforms the world and leads to perpetual joy. Let me show you where else we go with this. So, now we need to get into the investigation portion, right? The investigation, well, we've only done one, but we're gonna, we're gonna wrap these other ones up relatively quickly. The revelation is what Luke is trying to lay out is that over against the power and progress that are made by Rome and Syria and all these conquering nations, rather the true power, the divine coming into flesh, the presence of God is the real source of true and perpetual joy. And so now we gotta say, wait, 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 let, let me give that, a, let me investigate that a little bit. Let me, let me try that out. We see this in, in the text where it says this, when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. You see, after the revelation, if you don't do anything with it, you don't enter that cycle of joy. Right? Have you ever told a friend about a restaurant or a television show and then the next time you find them, you're like, hey, did you try that place out? And they're like, no. And they're like, why not? I told you it was the greatest thing ever. And they're like, nah, nah. It's funny until it's real. Like G.K. Chesterton, I'm sure you've heard this before. It's not that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It is what? Been found difficult and left untried. Now, I know you say like, hey, if the whole glory of the heavenly host appeared to me and told me something, absolutely, I would absolutely go and investigate and do it. I wouldn't hesitate. I would get on my camel. I would get on my horse. I would, get, I would do it right then and there. Okay. We have a Bible, right? Right? And so here's the thing that I think we need to get to. And this is a, a fascinating thing. In the investigation, one of my questions is why does Jesus come, or why, why does the revelation come to shepherds? Is there any significance to that? And I think there is, because throughout the scripture, there's something about a sort of nomadic spirit. This is what I mean. If you look throughout the scripture, look at all the places that the heroes of the faith, our faithful guides, our shepherds. Abel is a shepherd, all the way back in Cain and Abel. You remember that? Cain offered his sacrifice, which was from the ground, the plants, but Abel offered his sacrifice and it was accepted. Now we have no idea really why. We can speculate. But Abel, the first faithful one, was what? He was a shepherd. Abram, go from your land, from your people, and from your father's household to this land I will show you. There's this nomadic invitation, so Abraham goes. And then at one point, he and Lot become too large because their flocks and herds are too large. So what was Abraham? He was a shepherd. What about Jacob? His name eventually gets changed to Israel because he wrestles with God. Ooh, what was he? He was a shepherd. Moses spent 40 years in the desert, you know, um, taking care of his father-in-law's flocks. David, the greatest king in all of Israel, what was he? He was a shepherd. What is Jesus called? The good shepherd. What is the promise from Micah? It's that God is going to raise somebody up who will shepherd his people. It's as though there's something about sort of this noadic or nomadic spirit that, that makes us more available to engage in the presence and the speaking and the revelation of God. It's when God speaks, it's those of us who, who maybe don't cling to things quite so, so hard, who, who live with a bit of open hands, 
who are able to follow those whispers of God more regularly. And so my question is, when God speaks to you, how do you respond? When God speaks to you, are you ready to investigate and move? How many of you have seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special? Okay, just about everybody, right? Did you ever notice this part in the Charlie Brown Christmas special? There's this part where Charlie Brown just throws up in his hands and says, well, I guess nobody knows the real meaning of Christmas. And Linus says, well, I know the meaning of Christmas. And he's on stage and the the lights drop and he's got a spotlight on him. And what does he do? He reads this passage. And did you ever notice that when he comes to the point where he says the shepherds were terrified, but the angel says, do not be afraid, he drops his blanket. Did you ever pick up on that? See, I mean, like the author kind of knew, like he's sending a message, right? I mean, that's the sign. So the, the revelation, something, some word comes to us from God. And then when the object of our joy, when we follow that, when we investigate, when we experience, when we allow ourselves not to be afraid, we can finally then get to that place of jubilation or joy, which is the next thing that we see in the shepherds. By the way, he picks it back up again. Suddenly, the great company, oh, oh, so the joy, the joy in this passage, right? The joy actually comes a little bit earlier. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Or maybe, you know, you know um, peace and goodwill to men. You know that, right? This is one of the things that I think is the crux. This is the joy. This is the jubilation in this message. Because look at this word. There's a word in there, eudokia. Let me hear you say eudokia. I want to hear you all the way from the chapel. Eudokia. Eudokia is the word for um, peace on earth. Goodwill to men, right? Or goodwill to, to those on whom God's favor rests. The word, though, actually means a good pleasure or a pleasing power to save. So again, here's the question. Are you and I chasing after this all-elusive joy? Or is God's good pleasure, God's joy, chasing after you? Does that make sense? Because that's what it says. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace uh, and goodwill to those on whom his favor rests. That's the joy that you discover when you hear the revelation of God. You go about, you experience this, you investigate, you you follow what God is telling you to do, no matter how faint the whisper, and then you discover in the midst of it God's good, pleasing pleasure to save. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Christianity is found difficult and left untried. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but God is trying to save us. He's trying to rescue us. He's trying to break us out of that, that, that story that we're told, that power and progress are our deliverers, but they are finite, and rather, God is the infinite. I mean, what if, what if Moses hadn't taken that time to look and see why the bush was on fire, but it wasn't burning up? What if he was like, oh, that's cool, and then he just went on about his day? What if Isaiah, when he's confronted with the glory of God and the word saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us, he was just like, 
don't look at me, teacher, don't look at me, teacher, don't look at me, teacher. What if James and John and Peter and Andrew, when Jesus said, follow me, they were like, Jesus, we're, we're a little busy this week, but can we catch up with you next week? We miss out. When we don't engage in that investigation, we miss out on the joy that these people found for the rest of their lives, so much so that they all gave their life proclaiming and worshiping God. Which then, of course, comes to the last part, the proclamation. When they had seen him, when they saw this baby who is from ancient, who is from old, who is before Caesar Augustus, who will be after Caesar Augustus, who is before Quirinius, who will be after Quirinius. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about them, uh, told, told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, just as they were told. You see, this is the cycle of perpetual joy. There is a revelation. God speaks to us. There is an investigation. There is our response to it, whatever it may be. It's, it's followed by some sort of jubilation, right? Because we've seen what God, the infinite Jesus, does in our life. And then there is the proclamation. There is the telling of others. In, in this room, friends, I know there are some stories I know there are some incredible stories of ways over the years you have heard God speak to you, you have done things that would make no sense to the rest of the world, but you have gone out and done them and you have seen or experienced the presence of God as a result of it. This Christmas, I wanna invite you to tell that story. Or if you don't, or if you doubt, or if you wonder, I invite you to engage sort of in this process. Will you believe with me that God is passionately pursuing you, that the goodwill is God's good pleasure to save and to rescue you. And it's not done by the world standards. It's done by God not only sending, not only coming in vulnerability, not only coming as a baby, but coming in his presence. That God's presence pervades this earth, that God is chasing after you and me, desiring that we would have a depth of perpetual joy that we never knew about. I told you Linus picks up his, his thing, right? Well, if you watch it to the end, this is what happens at the end. If you can see it up there, he's finally taken his security blanket the thing that, that protected him from his fears, that finite thing that might have brought him a finite comfort or a finite set of, sense of joy. And he's wrapped it around the base of the Christmas tree. Let that be our lesson. The revelation of Luke chapter two is the revelation that God has sent God's very presence into your life, into my life, into all of the world. And if we would follow the promptings of God, we would find this, this joy that wells up inside of us. It's almost as though Jesus talked about some of these things and we would be able to share the good news with everyone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we sit quietly for a moment, pondering that nomadic spirit. What is different about the shepherds? What is different about those who 
are out in creation. Those who see how the stars move, those who, those who protect against enemies, but those who oftentimes maybe are spending time in quiet reflection, wondering about this, this planet, wondering about these stars, wondering about this universe and the God who created all of them. God, I pray as we go into this season, which can be incredibly chaotic and fast-paced and filled with all sorts of expectations and assumptions, that we would find within it a place to rest and a place to listen to what you are revealing to us so that we can go and do what you've called us to do so that we can not only experience it, but we, ex- we, we then share in your joy that you are working to save us and to rescue us from this world. And then, you, because you are faithful, and then you are inviting us to be faithful guides to others. That as they see the joy welling up inside of us and they say, where does that come from? We point them to Jesus, the center of our life and the center of our joy. It's in his name we pray, amen.